Hello, everybody. Well, I hope you're still hanging in there. We've had some technical difficulties for sure. And um, we don't know why, but uh, here we are. And it's an interesting time. It's a time of um, search. <clears throat> it's a time of um, going higher, stepping up the ladder, the lattice ladder, never looking back, always believing that um, we can uh, get where we need to go when we're ready in our hearts and minds to do it. So I want to encourage you people to listen to this message today because it is a message that um, is not like any other message that you will normally hear. And why isn't it? Well, because we're not taking the normal, normal average approach that has biblically been taken over so many centuries of time. And we want to talk about some real biblical problems, not with the Bible, but with the interpretation of the Bible. There are, um, <clears throat> at this time, many archaeologists, many Egyptologists and scholars that are teaching and that are saying that this is what they believe, that one, there never was a Moses, that two, there never was an exodus from Egypt of the Jews, that three, there never was an Israel army that defeated the many Arab nations. And that's not the end of all the things that they are saying. They're saying that the whole Bible part of the books of Moses were written by the scribes when they were in captivity in Babylonian uh, era of time, <clears throat> and um, that they needed to, to do something to keep the faith alive. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, what they did to keep the faith alive is they came up with these stories. And um, they say it worked. People really believed them, and there was no way of really challenging them. And of course, these were scholars, and they had a lot of knowledge and the capability to use terms and names. And um, it was very convincing. And it was only a story. That's what they say. That's not what I believe. That's not what I know. What I know is that there is a story, but not that story. There is a, a depth of truth, but not that level of truth. And when we talk about the, the Exodus escape, uh, we've got to go deep, because if you don't go deep, you're not going to be able to find the truth. And, you know, we have to understand when you start making translations from Hebrew into English, for instance, it's not simple, Simon. It's not easy, because, for instance, there is no tense, T-E-N-S-E, -E, no tense in the Hebrew, no form to indicate the past, the present, or the future. The only way that you can tell the time in Egypt is by the context. You need the whole context to really tell you 
where it's going. Now, it used to be that the way the text was written, there were no commas, no punctuation, no chapter divisions, no paragraph divisions, and in fact, no divisions between the letters. They just all ran together and you would read it and know what those words were by the fact that many times you had heard the stories verbally. Of course, that's not true of the people that are the readers like the English readers. And so, you know, they needed to put it into a style that the English people could understand. So we're not blaming anyone here as far as the translators go. I think many of these translators were trying to do the best that they knew. And uh, I think that, you know, the fact that uh, the Hebrew stems use a simple, intensive, and causative, um, along with active, passive, and reflective actions, doesn't make it simple either. And Hebrew uses one and after another to link events together in a chain. And that is why the word and as a conjunction is so ex extremely important to the language. And why there uh, is the manifest revelation of the meanings of the word and and how important that that is. Now the adverbs uh, sometimes indicate time orientations. And um, it gives you some ideas of what is formerly, like the word form, formerly, and still, and later. And uh, gives you some idea of what is meant from the translation of what is past, what is present, and what is future. Later means future sometimes. So, acoustically, the Hebrew po uh, poets occasionally arranged their words so that the beginning letter fit uh, an order of the alphabet. And there's all kinds of things that have been done in the, in the scripture, parallelism, <coughs> and the way the use of the uh, synonyms, uh, synonymous, the uh, the antithetical, the synthetic, it just goes on and on with all the different things that scholars tried to do to make it understood. And um, this thing of reading into the distance of the word um, is something that takes a real potential of manifest realization and a scrutinizing of one's own ineptitudes so that you don't let any of those ineptitudes become a barrier from the potential that you are to have if you are going to understand it. Now in the Manifest Ritz, I, I once wrote this thing called the Lost Awe, A-H. And I wrote, once a long time ago upon earth, all people spoke one language. Of course, that's the story is told in Genesis 11.1. <clears throat> and um, 
<coughs> excuse me, I don't know why I'm getting choked up today, but here I am. <coughs> excuse me. The lost awe is not just about a lost language, but it's also about a lost brotherhood, a kinship reality, and a lost understanding of the Terragrammaton, which is the, uh, the YHVH lost word that is the real name of God. Now since the scripture tells us that humankind that are to seek the, the way of God must live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, Matthew 4.4 4 and Deuteronomy 8.3, these words must be restored so that humankind can be saved. The lost awe has become a mystery, sealed to the ages and the generations of time. And, and that's all through the, the Bible, you know, Colossians 1, 25 through 27, Re Revelations 5, 1 through 5, Matthew 13, 10, and Luke 8, 9 and 11. Wow. So, a sense of a lost awe is more important than what a person can, can even think. Now we have this word, akava, and at the end of akava you have the word aa, ah. And this akava has the capability of revealing the solution of the riddles of the Bible. And we're going to be into that, talking about that, and you can find that word in Strong's Hebrew Concordance. In the Hebrew Dictionary section, 263 and 262. And we're going to get into it. But there's all kinds of things. I've had people say to me, even just recently, they didn't understand the way that I did some of my writings and how that I changed, uh, you know, some of the, the singular terms to plurals and I changed uh, some verb words to nouns and so forth. But, you know, um, that was done... That was done in in the in the Bible. For Samuel uh, fifty two seven, Psalms thirty six sixteen, Psalms thirty two one, Romans ten, um, you know um, uh, five um, uh, fifteen rather, um, Romans ten fifteen, Romans uh, three ten and eighteen, Romans four six through seven, and um, it's no one in the New Testament that Paul changed singular uh, masculine terms to plurals. And there were changes of third-person masculine singulars, uh, uh, and uh, they were rendered into third-person uh, third, uh, uh, plural, plurals, and even the NIV Bible version converts third singulars into third plurals. So we get into quite an interpretive a commentary of variations. And I don't want to flood your mind today with too many seemingly contradictory type of things. But I talked recently, I think on Facebook, um, about the um, paternal stone. Uh, it's actually P-A-L, 
instead of P-A-T. I like to put the T on there sometimes. Uh, the uh, the uh, Paternal or the uh, Palermo stone is actually a different pieces of the wall. And on those different pieces of the wall, there were writings called the King's List, which also listed, you know, the different pharaohs uh, on, that, on that stone. And that stone actually is the name of an archaeological museum of Sicily. And it has, uh, you know, the, the, the list of, of these names. Uh, and it predates um, Manetho by over 2,000 years. The, 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 uh, the, the priest, uh, archaeologist, and, uh, and uh, person that's quite uh, recognized as, as an Egyptian etologist, uh, uh, scholar. Um, we know that it's not simple, Simon to go into the Bible or to go into any book or any history and try to find out which pharaoh was the pharaoh at what time. Because uh, a lot of these pharaohs had many different names, sometimes as many as five names. And um, <laughs> according to the purpose, according to <clears throat> what they were trying to ascribe to themselves at the time. <clears throat> And um, it's so important, uh, you know, to get into to the the riddle of these problems, the riddle of the language, the riddle of the pyramids. So we could incorporate that into what happened in in Egypt how it was divided into a lower Egypt and to an upper Egypt and the pharaohs and all of that. But I'm only so interested in that, especially for this teaching. But I know that there are ancient hieroglyphics that parallel the scriptures if a person is able to pro properly interpret them. And Lord's willing, if we get the time, we're going to go into that. We want to raise some of the fundamental understandings to the highest level that has ever been presented for the for for the for for the Christians and the Jews and and the Muslims if they're interested and um, we want to uh, to show <coughs> some of these things that have been have been mysteries and what the answer to them are. And I'm excited about it to be able to present this to you today and get started with all of these awesome revelations um, because they're so very, very important. Like even the pyramids, you know, people, people say, well, those were just, they were for burials. But actually not all of the pyramids were for tombs. In fact, one of the oldest, the most famous pyramid is really been questioned that what they call sarcophagus is not a, 
a, a tomb at all, but was a baptismal um, fixture. And that there was a whole lot more to that. Uh, and we probably won't get into that right now because uh, that is not exactly where I'm leading you on this uh, trip we're taking today. But before this is all over said and done, uh, it might be very interesting all the things that we will uh, we will get into because they are so very interesting. Now, I've in the past I have preached on the Hykos, H-Y-K-S-O-S. That is not exactly how they spelled it um, before some of the updates of the of of interpretations and so forth. But there was a tremendous um, Semitic influence in ancient Egypt. Now, the Arabs and the Jews, they're, they're of the Semitic culture. And uh, we have to understand that uh, the region from uh, the, uh, the, the Goshen area where the people of Israel stayed during the time of Joseph um, was in the lower Nile, lower Egyptian uh, part of the nation. And it was populated by, by people who had cultures and technologies derived from the Canaanite and the Mesopotamian uh, uh, background. And they used uh, pictorial writings uh, that were pre-dynastic uh, of the Egyptian hieroglyphics. And they came uh, from, from the uh, Sumerian, uh, also in the oldest name, called, called Sumer, S-U-M-E-R, which was basically a cut off of Nimrod's kingdom. And um, there's been many, many of the cuneiforms that have been found in the Mesopotamian area. And of course, Babylon was in uh, those uh, areas. And there are very, very interesting things uh, about that whole situation. Um, Abraham, uh, Joseph, uh, you're all connected to, those, to that era. And, and um, uh, the history of Egypt tells us that there was a time that Egypt, especially of the lower Egyptian part of, the, of Egypt, was successively ruled by Semitic kings. And uh, these kings were referred to uh, as Egyptians uh, by themselves, uh, but they, they were also given other names like the haikus uh, um, or the shepherd kings. And um, and it wasn't defined just to one explanation. It's sort of just like the, the pharaohs with all their different names. They were, they were a, a, a mingled people. And is there any Bible for this? Well, of course. We're, you know, we're, we're going to get into a lot of that as we, we talk about these things. But uh, during the rule of the Semitic chieftains of Egypt, uh, there were some great things that happened. Because, you know, these, these people had uh, 
capabilities of, of moving forward uh, gigantic uh, ideas that were full of idioms of new thought. And during the rule of those shepherd kings, um, Egypt went forward and advanced uh, very much in different fields of knowledge and endeavor, and uh, even in astrology, medicine, mathematics, and uh, all kinds of, um, of concepts of culture, and uh, all, all kinds of ideas and ideologies about uh, sculpturing and carving and hieroglyphics. And they were also uh, very involved in introducing to the Egyptians many, many things, such as um, stable kinds of boats. Uh, the Egyptians didn't have stable boats. They, they, they could hardly handle, uh, you know, the, 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 the Gulf of Aquaba and the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, but the uh, introduction by the Semitic uh, chieftains um, enabled them to have, uh, you know, boats that uh, incorporated a type of keel that stabilized their ships. And so um, uh, some of these people were, were called, uh, you know, uh, uh, Canaanites. Uh, some of these people were called Phoenicians. Um, the, some of these uh, people were called the High Coast. Uh, you know, they were a mingled people. Some of them were called children of Israel. But we've got to get the idea that these Semitic people bunched together. And there was a whole conglomeration of these Arabic people, which included the, the, the Hebrew uh, persons and and tribe uh, tribes of people and um, it's it's so so important when Joseph got into the picture and we don't need to I don't think go back to the whole story but Joseph of course was one of the sons of Jacob and his brothers were jealous of him and because of that jealousy jealousy they put him in a, in a a pit, and, and uh, the Mennonites uh, took him and sold him into Egypt slavery. But he grew out of that slavery and became second in command to the pharaoh of that time. And uh, in my opinion, I'm sure that uh, those particular pharaohs and kings and chieftains were uh, definitely from the, uh, the Semitic branch of the many uh, groups of of persons that had come there to live in Lower Egypt, and um, Joseph is famous. There, there is a there is in Lower Egypt uh, that uh, a canal called the Joseph Canal, and it comes off of the Nile River, and uh, it is said that Joseph introduced the concept of how to make these various. Um, uh, canals uh, that diverted the water and expanded the the planting uh, capability uh, for the people who lived in in Lower Egypt. Uh, there's another thing. Um, 
when we start looking at timetables and use a little bit of forensic kind of insights, we see that when uh, Joseph was made the second in command to the Pharaoh, that he would ride around in a chariot pulled by a horse. Well, chariots and pulled by horses and even horses wasn't something that was just automatic the minute that Egypt came into to, uh, uh, the creation of, of its uh, nationality of, of uh, cities and, and uh, cultures and, and concepts. And so I believe that because the background of, of Joseph through Jacob all the way back to Abraham, all the way back to Ur, E-R, which was over in the Persian Gulf uh, area, uh, not you know tied in uh, to the whole concept of uh, uh, of you know of of Babel, of the Babel Tower of of of, uh, of Babylon, and and the the Sumer and Sumerian people. Uh, that history goes back and says that that's the area that. That the idea of the wheel, the idea of the the chariot, was uh, first uh, uh, propagated, and it's interesting that when you look at the word uh, er er, that that is considered to be the abbreviation for for um, urim. You know, Moses introduced the urim and the thummim. And that this Ur actually is abbreviation for the word Urim. Now, that is deep because you think of Ur, of Ur as a, a sinful place, but it not necessarily always was a sinful, evil place, but something happened. And the Bible tells us in different places that the gods came down. And, 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 you know, when we really want to get into this thing about the Exodus escape, we have a connection, a root way, from Joseph into Egypt, and then him inviting his father and his brothers and all of them coming into the land of, of, of Goshen, and they're settling and, and uh, populating the area along with the mingled seeds of, uh, of, of, of other um, People of that that uh, same culture background, were, which were all offspring of Abraham, and we begin to see that when we start to talk about the escape of Israel from Egypt in the Exodus, the story really goes all the way back to Abraham when God spoke to Abraham, and He said. This place where you live in Ur, Urim, is no longer spiritually fit. It has become contaminated and it is now being taken over by the gods that came down that are the evil gods and that are devils. And I want you to get out of here and I want you to escape from this area. 
Now, I suppose that it was not just a simple thing to decide to pull your goods together and your family together and let anyone know that you're actually thinking that the town, the area that you're living in is full of demons and devils and evil and and uh, because, you know, they worshipped those devils. And I'm sure that they would kill for those devils. And it wasn't just a simple Simon thing for Abraham to say, oh yeah, oh okay, hey, uh, I'll just get my family together and get out of here. God had to sort of give him a sales pitch. He says, I want you to go to Canaan and and you know, Canaan wasn't as advanced as that area. It wasn't, in a sense, as glorious as that area had become. That whole, that whole area there was a, a powerful living area. And um, it had... Um, aspects and terms of knowledge that was spread throughout Mesopotamia. And so it's interesting when God spoke to Abraham, he said to Abraham, there is a man that I want you to find. And there is a city that I want you to find. So when you escape from here, your destiny will be to find in the land of Canaan this man who is a high priest And this city that he has built, and he achieved building this city without using any labor to do it. It's a city not made by hand. Now, Abraham was just a kind of a person who was a thinker. That's why God could say to him later, Abraham, look up the stars and Count the number. Now God knew that Abraham wasn't stupid. And he knew that Abraham had an idea from the kind of skies that they lived in at that time. There was a lot of clarity. And you could, you could see vast numbers of stars, endless. You couldn't even count them all. The naked eye could only incorporate so much of the vision. But you could clearly understand and see that there were stars far beyond what was easily visible. And God said, count them. And I, I'm sure that, that Abraham thought about that. And he thought, you know what? There's some reality to this meaning of count. There's something spiritual about that, something deep about that. Numbers have a connection, but there's something else that's deep about that. And then I'm sure he was just absolutely turned on about finding this man who was a high priest and who God was endorsing and who God was saying, 
This is a person who is not part of any of the heritage of the people around you. He is a person who is ancient and his line of ascent and line of descent are not even from this world. And Abraham was listening to this message and he was flabbergasted. He was at the point of almost being shocked that God was telling him this. But then in that area of Ur was not far from where the Babel Tower was. And the Bible says about that, that when the cherubim, seraphim angels looked down and they saw the progress that the Babylonians were making. Now there is a story there. I tell some of that story in the revelation of, of the E revelation. Actually pronounced a little different than that, but for the sake of simplicity, I'll just leave it that way right now. And the Bible says that those people that were doing that had acute imaginations. Imaginations that were advanced beyond the average human being. And it said their imaginations were so keen, so advanced, that they, their minds were tuned. And how do we know that? Because he said their, their, their minds had to be tuned in order for, for the Bible to say what it does. It says that the angels determined that there was nothing that these persons would not be able to accomplish with their imagination unless they were stopped. And because their imagination was dwelling on things that had potential for destruction, that had potential for things that belonged to the darkness and the evil, the gods of the cherubim and the seraphim decided they had to come down and stop it. They had to disrupt what was going on. And so the first escape that we're told about right now, that wasn't the first escape. first escape I'm telling you about right now, though, was the escape of Abraham and his family out of Ur. Strange that that could stand for Urim. At least that's what is recorded in the translations of some, some fairly famous interpreters. Somehow that has a clinch to it. Somehow that sounds right. These people were remnants of the offspring of those who succeeded 
and were on the ark and did not die by the, by the flood of Noah, of Noah's time. And so, the first escape began to take place. And Abraham took off with his family and with his goods to search for a man he had never met before, never heard of before, didn't for sure know what he looked like, was a little bit almost afraid to meet this man because of him being able to build a city that was not made by hand. So we're going to take a little break here, but the point that I want to make is the connection of Joseph through Jacob back to Abraham connects all of the way to the first escape. So in that sense, the Exodus escape goes all of the way back to the Mesopotamian, to the Ur city, and the escape from it by Abraham. Hang and hold, we'll be back in a little bit. Janet Lee at the Oregon.
So, thank you very, very much, Janet Lee. Uh, I get so turned on when I hear the spirit of your plan. Thank you so much. Okay, so now we've got Abraham on the way for search for the city. Let's just leave that for now. And I mentioned that that was not the first escape. Well, the first escape, of course, goes back before Abraham. It goes back all of the way to when there was a flood coming. And this flood coming was not just any normal kind of flood. And during this series, I'm really going to get into the flood and into the time of the flood. And I'm going to uh, show you in a very much more particular way than I ever have uh, in the past. Articulate it, if you don't mind me using that word. That's a language word. And um, <clears throat> show you how that that... It was the ending of the Ice Age. It goes back thousands of years. And that when it started with the, the genealogy of, um, of uh, Abraham, uh, there was some very uh, fancy uh, spiritual accounting that began at that time. And uh, I will get into that uh, with the opportunity of getting the series uh, going and hopefully uh, finally getting... Uh, these broadcasts where we overcome the technicality problems and and uh, we can uh, not lose our audiences or anything while we're trying to fumble around and finally get it going. And I'm not blaming this on any particular person. Uh, you know, uh, perhaps it's just the system. But uh, I plan to overcome that in one way or another. All right, so the first escape then was way, way back in time. And it's the first escape was um, escaping the flood. And um, escaping uh, the flood, of course, uh, not simple Simon thing. And uh, people say, well, you know, out of the perhaps millions of people that were living on the planet at the time, only eight people escaped. Well, yeah, you believe what makes you happy. But... Um, <clears throat> There's an aspect of that that has application and the fact that those eight people were were the probes and the the seed that was used to replant the earth. Uh, but they weren't the only ones that escaped. The other there, there was the escape from the flood on the earth and there, there was the escape from the flood to the Father's house, the Artura planet. And, and Jesus spoke of it and I've done a lot of teaching about that. But I'm going to get more specific. I'm going to get more detailed. And of course, you know, I know where the, the Father's planet is and how that it's um, within this galaxy, but it's actually in a minor, a very small galaxy that is a part of this galaxy. And uh, it is just so interesting. We'll get into that. Well, one of the things that comes with the revelation of all that is the wheel, the plan of the wheel. And this thing of the plan of the wheel is so important. And it seems that the first time that um, there's a mention of, of a wheel um, is in Genesis with uh, the chariot, the chariot that uh, Joseph is involved with. 
well, you know, do you think it's possible, being that he is the one who revealed um, the canals and how to divert how to divert those canals from the Nile, that he also revealed how to use the uh, the pyramids to store food, and um, and for the, a famine that was going to come that would last seven years. And that he had that revelation? Do you think it would be strange, being that he came from Ur, that he came from from an area that that were involved with the creation of the wheel and the chariot, that he introduced the chariots of the type pulled by horses to the Egyptians of his time? Well, I think that's totally possible. Well, do you think that Joseph might have been involved in the plan? Uh, for the eventual exodus? Well, I sure do. Because Jacob understood that. And Jacob said, now one day, God is going to move in a particular kind of way. And then he says, then you, you, you people will leave Egypt. And when you do, I want you to carry my body back to the land of Canaan, which is is the land that where God has put us. And Joseph was a believer in that, and he was aware of that, and he was really connected with his father. And he had the revelation of that special robe that he wore of the many colors, and all those colors represented significant insights. And he said that when he died, he wanted his body taken back and buried in Canaan. He didn't want it buried in Egypt. So he was involved from the very beginning of the concept, as was his father Jacob, in the escape from Israel, of, of Israel, pardon me, to Canaan, out of Egypt. So the escape, the exodus, he was involved in that. So now we have a connection to all of these different ones involved in this escape. All the way back to Abraham. Going before Abraham, we have the connection of Abraham being sent to meet Melchizedek, who was this man that was the high priest whose lineage was not of this earth, and who would introduce to him a city not made by hand, which it tells about in the book of Hebrew by Paul. And now that connection brings us to another time, to a time of which Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking. They were going on just not paying any attention to much anything spiritual, not paying much attention to anything significant as to the world coming to some kind of cataclysmic uh, disaster, being totally unaware of the possibility that God would be very unhappy with the forces of darkness that were taken over and, and, uh, and uh, planting devils in the cities. And it says, so here's what's going to happen, Jesus said in the 24th chapter, of the book of Matthew. 
the Lord is going to come with his angels in the skies. And he's going to to take his people out of here so that they could escape. And he says, when I return, I will come with my angels and I will come with the capability to deliver you from the great problems that are going to come as a result of the, the Great Depression that will have been on the earth and done much destruction. And then Jesus says, and understand, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying this is implied, understand, as it was in the days of Noah, that's what I'm telling you about that's going to be again. Because there will be two in the field, one will be taken, the other will be left. There will be two at the mill, one will be taken, the other will be left. And those that are taken will be taken up to the sky to meet me in the air. And as that was, is the case that is of the future, that's how it was back in the days of Noah. As it was in the days of Noah, so it's going to be again. So how was it in the days of Noah? Well, there was a rapture back then. The offspring of Enoch were taken up. The Bible says that Enoch especially had this experience after he had this son who was called the son of a dart. His name was Methuselah. And he was involved. He was involved in this. Now, this is what I call an awe. And I talked about that lost awe. People haven't been able to talk about things like this because it hasn't been revealed in the average pulpit. And they're missing the lost awe. And it's interesting that one of the, the spellings that, that tells us if, if a name has some relativity to the, to the idea of, of, of the Lord, of God, you know, is the awe. And, and there's certain terms like the L, E-L, and the A that, that, that have a meaning of, of, of meaning God or meaning Lord. And so that missing A is like the missing tetragrammaton. The Y-H-W-H or the Y-H-V-H. The pronunciation has been lost. The meanings of it has been lost. It's like the Book of the Wars, as we'll get into uh, just abbreviating over. It's been lost. Why is the Book of the Wars important? <laughs> it's extremely important because it tells the real story about the Exodus. Well, how could I know about it? Because we're into the energy dot revelation. We're into the understanding that even science admits in the laws of conservation that energy can never be destroyed, can never be lost. That's why there's such a big dispute going on right now about the black holes. Because those that are teaching that the black hole destroys everything, that, that information, everything destroyed, and 
the scientists are having a real uh, paradox with that. Because they're saying, no, 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 that breaks the law of conservation. That destroys the first meaning of the thermodynamics of the law of con of, of, of this law of conservation. Because they realize you can't ever have this thing of losing information. It can't be lost. It's an energy. And when you begin to realize this thing that it's an energy, then you can connect that with the book of life. The book of life is energy about everything that has ever happened. Every city that has ever existed, every person that has ever existed, every planet that has ever existed, every star that has ever existed, every planet of, of, that people have lived on, every universe that there has been that has existed, that there have been people, creations, entities. It cannot be lost. It belongs to the law of conservation. That's, what, that's, that's God's law. It can change. It can change form. But it can't be destroyed. And anything that can change form and go one direction can end up coming back into that once form it had in the sense of the recollection and the retelling of the story of what it was. So like you look at a star that's out there and the scientists say, ah, that star is from the Big Bang and it's 13.7 billion years old. And what they're saying is, well, you know, that star is not really still in existence. But we are seeing the image of that star as it, as it once existed. And, it, and when we look at it, we're seeing it as though it is still in existence. But it actually ceased to be billions of years ago. And we're looking at this star that, that is, the, is the picture, the image. But it actually doesn't exist any longer, but its information does. Because you can't destroy the information. It's part of the law of conservation. And so as we begin to get into those understandings, we understand that that is true throughout the Bible. You can, you can have people misinterpret the word. You have people mis, mispreach the word, misteach the word. You can have all kinds of people broadcast, all kinds of people say all kinds of things. But I want to tell you right now, ladies and gentlemen, they cannot destroy the truth. And that's why Jesus said, it's very important that I go away. He means that I move from the idea of the Son of Man and that I move into the aspect of only being the Son of God. It's very important that the Son of Man part moves on. Because then there will be a replacement of me. Because that image, the Son of Man, is described in the first chapter of the book of John, St. John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with, was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word was made flesh. And that flesh, of course, was Jesus. 
The Word was made flesh. Now, if the Word can be made flesh, then you can take the flesh and you can take it backwards and the flesh becomes the Word. You, you can not destroy the information of the Word and what it has been. You can change the form, but there is always the potential and always the possibility in that, re that reverse to bring back the story, the information, the reality, the potentiation of what that, that frame of lattice, that state of being had become and what it changed to and then to restore it to all of those different successions of time and event and causation and representations. And so, it is so interesting. Now we've got Jesus saying, as it was in the days of Noah. <laughs> yeah, that's how it's going to be again in the rapture. There was a rapture back then. That was the first escape. That's when the sons of Enoch, because the Bible says one day Enoch was not. And, 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 and this, once he start, had the son Methuselah, the Selah reference, Methuselah, Selah. <laughs> that is tied into all kinds of teachings that we'll, we'll get into as we get up the road here with this series of teaching. It's exciting. And we are creating excitons. We are creating superior envelopes that hold keys to mysteries that have been sealed in those envelopes. And the Spirit of God is saying, open the book, open the seals. It is time for my revelation. It is time for the mysteries. It is time for the Word of God to be manifested. So it's exciting. Yes, I, I read to you that they, there are Egyptologists. There are some very famous archaeologists, and they're saying Moses never existed. There were no armies of, of Israel. On and on and on. But they're wrong. They're wrong. Because there is a story of why they cannot find the truth and haven't found the truth. And we're going to tell you what that is. We're going to show you the scripture and you're going to want to stand and you're going to want to jump and you're going to want to dance and you're going to want to shout. Wow. So, Here's the thing. Here's what it says in the book of Exodus. But God led the people about. And this is Exodus 13, 18. But God led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, colon, or period. Now remember, in the original, there were no colons. There were no periods. But let's put a period there. 
Because the Bible does tell us that the angel of the Lord went before the persons that were going to go across the Red Sea, that were going to go through this experience. And the Bible tells us that it's all about raising an army. And the Bible says that there were 600,000 soldiers that were raised up and, and made it into an army. And they were called the army of the host of Israel. Now, there were no children in that army. There were no mothers in that army. There were no people that were too old or too young in that army. It was a specialized army being trained. And one of the things that, that God spoke to, to Moses was that the thing that you're going to have to be careful with, you're not going to be able to bring all these people out on this trip of escape in the same way. Because it says when they, many of these people see war, they will become discouraged and they will want to give up and go back to Egypt. So that is not the plan. That is not the plan. You are not to take the children and the mothers and those that are too old or too young. They do not go. That is why in this scripture that I'm reading you, there is a conjunction that is put in there. You've heard of the conjunction of the planets? This is the conjunction of the Bible, a major one. So he says, and God led the people through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. That's one big army. Let's say their number is correct, 600,000 people. Then he puts an and in there. And the children of Israel went up harnessed out of the land of Egypt. Now, if they were going to be taken out of the land of Egypt, then we're not talking about going across the wilderness desert to the Red Sea, because Egypt is still Egypt all the way across that desert, all of the way to the Red Sea. You don't get out of Egypt until you cross the Red Sea. So taking them out of Egypt means, and the children, Taken out of it means they were taken separately and they went a different way, they went a different route. They did not go the way of the army. And that's why the army could travel and do the things that it did because they were a young, powerful army of, 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 of fighters. They were trained and, and there was a large group of them. And the Bible says... And the children of Israel went up harnessed out of the land. Now, the word harnessed here means five. So what it means is that they divided the children, you know, with the mothers, into five different groups, along with some of the older men that went with them that were too old to go as, as soldiers uh, across the, the other route. With the, with, the, with the army. And they went a different direction altogether. Now we'll get into that because there's scripture for it. And this is so important because if you take it mathematically, the 600,000 people, 
and you use just a reasonable ratio of average, it would mean that the children and the women and the older people and the younger people that were not part of the 600,000 people would, would approximately equal 2 million persons. So you would have 2 million per persons going out and traveling. Now, if you were trying to travel with 2 million people, 2 million people, there is no way you could have done what the Bible says that they did as far as making mileage the first few days. We'll get into all of that. They couldn't have done it. But now, being an army, strong, young, trained men, they could make that kind of a trip. And they could make that kind of a speed. And this was all part of the plan from the beginning. It wasn't something new. It wasn't just all Mo the idea of Moses. But Moses got the picture. And, and Moses, understand, tradition tells us that being an a adopted son of, of, of a pharaoh, whose adopted mother was a wife of a pharaoh. He was involved in the police action sta stations that were all different places over the, the desert areas. And he knew, he knew the way of the desert because there were armies of the Egyptians. Remember, at this time, the century that this happened, Egypt was a vastly powerful ruler of a large portion of the earth. And he had even gone up into Ethiopia, above Upper Egypt, and fought with the Ethiopians up there. It was actually from some of those wars that he really found his first, first Ethiopian wife. We're talking about Moses. So Moses would know not to try to take two million people across that desperately hot, desperately uh, difficult passage across that desert wilderness area. He would know trying to do that would just be too complicated. So Goshen was not that far from the Mediterranean Sea. It was not difficult to get connections because many of those people from Goshen's, Goshen owned boats and small ships. And they were involved in trafficking the people which were the bulk of these two million, on down into Canaan. And what were those people supposed to do? They were all assigned. They were given money from the treasuries. They were given money from, from sources that they collected from people that the Bible says the Egyptians were giving them their gifts that had value. They, were, they shared that money mostly with those people because 
when Moses went across that, that route that he went, there were almost no cities and towns at all. He didn't need any money. He, when he wanted something from a city, he would, he, he would tell them, you know, you give, give these things to us or be decimated. And they would gladly give it if that's what he wanted to do. But he, he took with them animals and sources for food and so forth, and, and there were difficulties, but, you know, that was a plan. But these people took the money, these other of the two million, they took this, this money, and their plan was to buy particular kinds of supplies, particular kinds of things that they needed for the blacksmiths, and then there was to be a meeting place. And it's all, this is told in the story. Paul gives the revelation, and it's in, and it's in, the, it's in the various books of the story. The whole story is actually in the Bible. I'm going to share it with you. It's awesome. It's exciting. Now, they didn't just all leave at once, like a two million people troop out. They just left a family here, a family there. Two or three families maybe at this time, two or three families later. And their boats just got them out and got them on down there, and then they, they were to all meet with Moses at a certain place. Now, I've, I, I know people have said, oh, well, then that, that can't be true, because Moses wasn't supposed to be able to go into Canaan, and the children of Israel weren't be able to, supposed to go into Canaan until they crossed over the Jordan. You know, when people talk like that, that's just people that don't know what they're talking about. Because there's two different things there, just like there's the two different groups of people. The people that came across the Jordan came across as armies, and they came across to, to, for war. But these other people went as Semenites. They'd already been mixed and mingled with all these Semenites that were going back and forth doing trade routes. That was a common thing. And they went back. And so that's a big, big difference of coming across into a land as a, as to make war and coming across just as visitors or as uh, uh, original uh, persons having lived there, etc. And the interesting thing was, when Moses is receiving the revelation about the Canaan, about Canaan and 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 where the trademark of, of, of a land title was to be, it was going to be between Beersheba and Dan. Beersheba and Dan. And this place that ends up being the meeting place is just outside, about a day's journey from on the other side of Beersheba. So these people uh, uh, that went ahead and went into, the, into Canaan uh, uh, and any of the army people that might have helped them at that time did not actually go into the, the promised land because they were outside of Beersheba where this meeting was to take place and where even the Midianites came and brought the, wives and the, the wife and the children of Moses to him. We'll go through all those scriptures. We'll show you all these incredible, interesting things. It's exciting. And so they went harnessed. They, they, they broke into five different groups.
And maybe, let's say for the first three months, there would be this group that would, they would, you know, fell some of the small boats, or there would be a family at a time. They were all part of one of the five groups until they got off and over and settled. And then we'll tell all the things that happened there and how they did it and why they did it and 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 why that the archaeologists have not been able to find uh, any any uh, signs uh, uh, of of uh, the Exodus. We'll we'll explain to you why. And we'll show you scripture for that. It's absolutely exciting. There is just absolutely nothing more exciting than to discover the truth. And just to show you that when I'm talking about these Semitic connections, when God was speaking and giving instructions to to Moses and and when these people were were talking like Jacob and the different ones there are things recorded that they said that is extremely interesting but it, it definitely backs my teaching now I'm going to read to you here's something in Deuteronomy 26 and this might surprise you but in Deuteronomy uh, 26 and, uh, and verses um, 1 through, uh, through 10. Um, let's see if I can find what I'm looking for. Uh, I think I want it in my other Bible. That's where I marked it. But you know, when we start getting into these scriptures, when we start opening up these scriptures, um, it, it is just so exciting. Deuteronomy 26, verse 5. And thou shalt speak and say before the Lord thy God, A Syrian ready to perish was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a few, and became there a nation great, mighty, and populous. A Syrian. You don't usually ever think of the Hebrews having been, been a Syrian. But here it is right in the Bible. A connection of the mingling of these Semenites. Just right here. Who's it talking about here? It's talking about Jacob taking the family to be with Joseph in Egypt. And it says, Thou shalt speak and say before the Lord thy God, a Syrian ready to be perished was my father. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there with a few. You're supposed to tell them this. You're supposed to let them know of the connection to the Semenites. Because after all, the father of the Semenites was Abraham. And there's a very, very important teaching on that that we're going to get into up the road a little bit. Now you've got scripture here that makes it very, very clear. And how does this chapter start? 
Well, in chapter 26 that I'm reading from, it says, And it shall be that when thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance, and possessed it, and dwelleth there, thou shalt take of the first fruit of the land, and thou shalt bring that unto the Lord thy God. And all of these things are about this land. And verse 8 says, And the Lord brought us forth, and you're to tell this story, out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Now, people don't know what that outstretched arm means. That outstretched arm is referring to the particular aspect of how God brought the people of Israel out. He brought them out in the one part as, a, as, a, as an army, and then this outstretched arm took the other part and brought them out a different way, a different way, plan, so that there wasn't two million people that crossed the, the desert. And if the archaeologists, the Egyptologists, are looking for, for two million people and all the debris that they would have made, no wonder they can't find it. No wonder they're looking in vain. And with, with all of the different names of different pharaohs that they've used, and all the change of the names of the cities that there's been, you know, when the scribes would write, and they would say, now, these people lived at the, at the site of, and they would name some famous city. And then people would dig, in the, the archaeologists would dig in that, into the, where that city was. They'd say, well, we can't, find, we can't find anything. In fact, we found some pigs, and the Egyptians... I mean, the uh, Hebrews never, ever raised pigs. So this is false. But they don't realize that maybe the reference that they're giving is only the site where that city by a different name existed. And it's a much older time, and you have to go down maybe 25, 30, or 40 feet to find the, the, the remains, and you'll not find any remains of any, any pigs there because they didn't raise pigs. They raised sheep. And so they're trying to find the name of a town that is only a designation to give them where the site was. And if they, if they would have said the name of this town is Hoka Poka, they wouldn't even know what that was. They'd have no idea. But by saying the name of a town that was familiar with people and that they knew about that it had existed and roughly where it had existed, then people had an idea what, this, what the scholars were talking about as they wrote this story, this great story of Exodus and the story of Moses. Ladies and gentlemen, Lord willing, we'll be back next week, and we'll continue. This is a series, and it's going to get deeper. It's going to get more beautiful. It's going to get more awesome. The excitrons are going to flow. God bless you. We love you. Janet Lee of the Oregon.